The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol S. I-L. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. that's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Now, you've had success in the past along with your management team with a previous incarnation called Silvercrest Mines, and that company successfully sold to First Majestic Silver. You've been reborn as Silvercrest Metals under the symbol SIL with the same management team. We're just trying to do it all over again. Same success we had Silvercrest Mines or the old Silvercrest. Basically what we did with that company in 2006, we made a discovery in Mexico. We took that discovery into a major producer by 2012, 2013. It was done on a phased approach business model. We started out small, we generated cash flow, and from that cash flow, we grew that asset. And it got to a point where Silvercrest Mines was a one asset wonder in the industry with a great reputation. We felt it was time to take that one asset and do a deal with First Majestic Silver. And the deal that was done was basically we became owners in a major silver producer of about 23% interest. The Silvercrest Mines or Old Silvercrest shareholders got a big portion of that producer, which has a good following and good respect in the industry. And along with that deal, we did a spinoff, and this is the spinoff, Silvercrest Metals, or SIL on the market. Well, we brought in about $5 million in cash. We raised another $2.5 million, about $7.5 million in cash. So we are a cash-rich Canadian junior explorer in Mexico. And we're looking at doing this all over again. It's a lot easier this time because we got money in the bank. When we first created Silvercrest Mines in mid-2000s, we had very little to no money and very little following. We're looking at just creating more shareholder value and doing it again. And you intend on doing that with your flagship property, Las Chispas, also located in Sonora State, Mexico, not far, of course, from the Santa Elena mine, which you sold to First Majestic. Part of the success formula all along that we've had now bringing that into Silvercrest Metals was to look at things that were simple. They're easy to get to, good infrastructure. We know the area. It's in the state of Sonora. Great access. One of the things that's important when you're trying to explore, develop, and produce It helps a lot to be about in the same time zone. I can fly down to site the same day and make critical decisions. That's very important for executive management to have that kind of access. 
Las Chispas was carved out of the deal with First Majestic as a spinoff. It's located about 25 kilometers north of the successful Santa Elena mine, or about a 45 to 55 minute drive. In the backyard of currently a producing mine, it's also located about the same distance from the Mercedes mine, which is a Yamana mine. That's one of Yamana's flagships and their only producer in Mexico. A great location and area to be exploring. We're looking at spending about $750,000 to a million dollars this year of our $7.5 million that's in the bank account for a discovery at Las Chispas. Las Chispas was a significant silver gold producer between 1880 and 1930. It produced down to the water table. There's approximately 20 epithermal veins. Only three of those have had any production. Their previous production was about 100 million ounces of silver and 200,000 ounces of gold. We do have direct access to a lot of underground workings right now with good values right at the face. We're just kicking off a rehabilitation program for the project. We're going to open those underground workings. There may be some high-grade material right out in front of us. When I talk high-grade, average grade of production was 1.7 kilos of silver per ton and about 15 grams per ton gold. With a share price of near 15 cents, it would be safe to say potentially that there's a lot of room for upside. We're trading at below cash value right now, if you want to call that upside. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you very much. You've been on the road quite a bit. I hope your voyages have been productive and useful. Oh, they have. Part of being in a company that treats disease that focuses on a worldwide issue is worldwide travel. I and mean, we've conducted clinical trials in 14 different countries now, and most of those are in Europe. So we spend a fair amount of time going over to Europe and dealing with each different country and different clinical trials. So it's, it's exciting though. I mean, this is the best possible time to be associated with a program like this. So it's not hard getting up in the morning at all to come and bounce into work and, and do these things. And if works over in Europe that week, well, that's fine. Well, basically, you're saving lives, really. And speaking of which, ovarian cancer, you had a news release on March 21st, and I believe a random phase two study was completed, and there were some results. And, and let's discuss this particular disease today that afflicts so many women around the world. Ovarian cancer is the lesser known of the major women-specific cancers that people think of. I mean, breast cancer is the one that always comes to mind first, and deservedly so. I mean, it's a very serious disease and affects far, far too many women. But ovarian cancer kills, unfortunately, as many women as breast cancer does. And it's a very, very, very important disease and until recently has actually been not focused on very much. And right now the industry is focusing a great deal of attention on ovarian cancer. And there's a, a numerous studies ongoing, which is a change from just a few years ago. And most interesting, of, of course, to us in the area is that there's a, a much greater focus on, on the immune effects, which I've talked about before, of the immune system on ovarian cancer. And really some, I think, serious 
changes in the standard of care of ovarian cancer are about to happen because of that, and that's all good. In our case, we've been looking at uh, ovarian cancer in combination with the former and current standard of care in some cases, which is a, a taxane-based regime. And so we were looking at taxanes in the control arm plus realicin in the test arm. And we're really just starting to get all the data out of that study. And the investigator reported it at a major meeting in California. And one of the, I think, most interesting elements out of that report was they still haven't done the immune elements of it yet. But on one of the major antigens that people follow to detect the progress of ovarian cancer, which is CA125, and all an antigen is is, is something that's shed usually into the bloodstream or sometimes into the urine and you can just measure with a blood test. For men, they're used to hearing things like PSA for prostate cancer. Well, there's equivalent ones for other cancers as well. In ovarian cancer, it's CA125. Now, not all women express CA125, so it's not a universal antigen, but for the women who actually have high levels of CA125, it's a very commonly used detection. And so they don't have to get scanned and things like that. You can just actually measure it in their blood. You do a simple blood test and you test it and you can follow the progress of their cancer. But in that case, we saw this very important shift in responses. So instead of having just stable disease, patients would have partial responses. Instead of just having partial responses, if they had that, they would go to a complete responses. And if they had progressive disease, some of them go on to have just stable disease, which is an improvement. So you saw this shift in response based on the addition of realizing. And that's really quite significant, I mean, because that measures total tumor burden. And so we were very excited with the results. I mean, it gave us a very strong indication that realizing has a potential to be used in ovarian cancers. Now, we're completing the immune analysis now, but that'll tell us the really top-notch stuff with respect to overall survival. And we think we could actually tweak the immune system to work with realizing as well. So very exciting results for us and very important for us to actually fit in with this new wave of things, which is immune therapy. With immune therapy, is it a chicken and egg scenario? If you have a weakened immune system, are you more susceptible to cancer? Or when you get cancer, does it weaken your immune system? It's usually the former. Aging degrades your immune system. There's no other way of saying it. I mean, uh, your immune system at age 40 is probably half of what it was when you were 20. And when you're 60, it's half a game. And when you're 80, it's half a game. So, you know, by the time you're 80 years old, you, you know, have an eighth of the immune system you did when you were a healthy, young, vigorous 20-year-old. That's why we see cancers in patients that are older with increasing frequency. I mean, normally your immune system takes care of cancer. I mean, most people don't realize this and probably don't want to think about this, but They've had cancer many, many, many times by the time they're an adult, but they never had the disease cancer. And so cancers will pop up, your immune system will go, hey, that doesn't belong here and deal with it just like it would with an infection or a parasite. And that's the normal case. And as you get older, your immune system gets older too, and you start not seeing the cancer, the immune system doesn't, and all of a sudden you start getting higher frequencies of cancer. And uh, you quite often hear the expression in our industry, cancer is a disease of aging, and it is. I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, children get some very serious cancers, and adults get specific serious cancers before they get older. But a lot of them are environmentally induced. Smoking, you know, is the prime environmental irritant for cancers. Yeah, I mean, you, as you get older, your immune system drops, and, you know, you get cancer. And this kind of new wave in oncology is to take what is there in the immune system and give it a helping hand. And so you either enhance the immune system or you wipe its eyeglasses off so it can see again, metaphorically, so that you use the same immune system that's there, but you target it. And Realizin works with both of those modes of action quite well. So our immune program, our clinical program going forward is very much uh, immune focused. And, uh, you know, we have a number of clinical studies right now looking at both elements, enhancing the immune system and wiping the immune system's eyeglasses off. What are some of the other studies we can look forward to potentially seeing information from during the coming months? 
Well, we have uh, two groups of studies. One is our existing phase two randomized program. And uh, I would think people can expect to hear more about a pancreatic cancer study that was run in the United States by the NCI. More data coming out of our Canadian randomized studies. Uh, there's a non-small cell lung study breast cancer study, a prostate cancer study, and a colorectal cancer study. And all but the breast study should report at least preliminary data in 2016. Uh, the breast study will be 2017. It was a little later finishing enrollment. In parallel with that, we're running our first sets of immune studies, pure immune studies. So we're doing a children's pediatric glioma or glioblastoma study, which is a serious form of brain cancer um, that we should be reporting on data this year by just enhancing the immune system to work with reolysin. And we're also doing our first uh, what people call checkpoint inhibitors, which is the wiping the glasses off so the immune system can see the tumor better type of drug. And that's being conducted down in Texas with pancreatic cancer patients and combining reolysin and one of these new checkpoint inhibitors. And we should be reporting on data in the second half of this year on that as well. So we have all sorts of things that we're going to be talking about in 2016, which is pretty exciting, honestly, you know, and further defining how Realison works. I mean, we've clearly demonstrated Realison reduces tumor burden if you have the right genetics in the tumor. And now we're in the midst of extending that and trying to show that it also has that effect overall survival under the right conditions. It's a very exciting time for us. There's certain genetics, and you know a thousand percent more about it than I do, but there's certain genetics that carry down in families, many cases where sisters are afflicted with a, a similar disease and their parents have died of certain cancers. Is it at the point yet where you can spot these genetic markers and begin to a, a attack a potential cancer? Or is that not within the realm of what you're looking at in some of these studies? I think that really is the case, and sometimes the mutations, on the genetics are only in the tumor. And so you can't really see it if you're just looking at a otherwise normal healthy patient. And sometimes there's an inherent flaw in the person's genetic basis that they have at birth that will lead them to have cancer sometime in the future. And that's where a lot of the attention is being driven with people, especially with some of the mutations that lead to breast cancer. But there are familial, what we call familial genetics that are predictive of a high probability of cancer. So there's really two different types that you have to look for. One is actual changes that are not unique to the person, but unique to the tumor. And those are kind of hard to follow early on, and then there's the ones that potentially lead to cancer. Personal example of that, I've got a, a genetic flaw that leads me to have different skin cancers, and you know, I lost the genetic lottery at birth on that one. But you know, other people, it's you know, how much sun exposure they have that causes mutations and things like that. And then I think there's a number of cancers uh, with, with real license that we are beginning to believe we should be able to do the predictive on the general population, just kind of test people for this, 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 and this, and say with a high probability that you're going to get a certain type of cancer sometime in your life. On this program, we've been shining a light on the company for just over a year now, and we are still attempting to bring a larger audience to your company for two reasons. To provide hope is the main reason, and secondly, you are a potential investment opportunity. Companies in biotech, the valuations are driven by information and data. People will talk about what milestones you're going to achieve and those sorts of things. And that's all prior to product approval. You know, once a product is approved in a biotech company, then you can switch over to this more normal measure of things, which is looking at profits and doing multiples on profits. And then you come up with a stock price. And there's actually a very narrow band of valuations in biotech companies based on that. But 
before that, you're looking at milestones. And so OnClick is an investment vehicle. You look at it and you have to say, what are the milestones coming up? The milestones for us are five randomized phase two clinical trial data points within the next uh, 12 calendar months and initial readouts on the first two immune therapy studies. So those are the milestones for the next calendar year and then they're very important and they should, one way or the other, lead to valuation changes in the company. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to chatting with you again in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining us today in the program. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I'll take care. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Michael Ballinger, Chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SRC.V and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Stakeholder Gold is conducting exploration on its 100% owned Ballarat Gold property located 120 kilometers southeast of Dawson City in the White Gold District of the Yukon. Originally trained during the inflationary 1970s, Michael Ballinger is a graduate of St. Louis University, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Finance and a Bachelor of Art in Marketing before completing postgraduate work at the Wharton School of Finance. With more than 30 years of experience as a junior mining and exploration specialist, as well as a solid background in corporate finance, Ballinger's adherence to the concept of hard assets allows him to focus the practice on selecting opportunities in the global resource sector with emphasis on the precious metals exploration and development sector. Mike, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on. Thank you very much, Ellis. Thank you for having me. Why are you all in with stakeholder gold? I'll back you up to kind of the process I use. And firstly, I don't want to be in countries where I wake up tomorrow morning and, and a government has changed and the legislation that arrives on a silver platter with that new government reaches down deep into your right pocket and removes your wallet, your checkbook, and your watch. And there's too many places around the world where you can say that it's politically stable and friendly to the mining business, but actually is not. But North America, where I sit, is the f- best place to do business. And then within North America, you've got areas, for example, of Canada, which I still view as the number one place to invest in mining companies and to explore in the world. And within that, I think that the Fraser Institute, which is a big Canadian think tank group, have rated Canada's Yukon territories as the most highly prospective geologically. And it certainly is in the top 10 in terms of its friendliness to mining and exploration through the existence of grant programs. And they bend over backwards to provide power and all kinds of accommodation to anybody trying to find new wealth, new resources, um, copper, lead, zinc, gold, silver. And let's not forget, of course, that the old adage that is used by explorers and prospectors is the best place to look for a new gold discovery is in the shadow of a head frame of a major mine. So what you have to do is you'll have to look at the Yukon as a perspective area, which has already been ranked perspective, and been the site of a lot of very, very big mines, despite its remoteness. And then it just brings you back to the sex appeal and the romance of the Klondike Gold Rush of 1897 to 1902. You know, 14 million ounces taken out by sourdoughs, by panning streams 
in one of the largest gold rushes on the planet. And since the streams were coming up elevation, they were coming from hills. A company which I've been recommending and owned for about three years now has just passed positive feasibility. Its name is Kamenak Gold Corp. Its property, the coffee property, is about 20% explored. They've just delivered a positive feasibility study. They have a cash cost of production under 700 bucks an ounce US. It has been recommended by Virtually every analyst I know that visits it realizes it. it's a world-class mine. They've got 5 million ounces. They've got 1.8 million measured and indicated. they got 3.4 million inferred. And getting back to stakeholder, lo and behold, eight kilometers to the north of that with known gold-bearing soils and trenches existing on the project. And it's a big property. And with Kamenak's newly announced road going through the eastern portion of our property all the way to Dawson City, stakeholder gold has got the Ballarat property sitting there, eight kilometers north of the coffee property with known gold-bearing mineralization on it. And just to give you an idea of how you enhance your odds in something like this, the prospector that delivered the coffee property to Kamenak was the 2011 Prospector of the Year. Sean Ryan has taken one advisory board position with Stakeholder Gold, and that's the one that I created for Stakeholder back in 2013. And Sean and I are now the only two members on the advisory board. And he is our advisor in the Yukon to Stakeholder and has given his both thumbs up to the Ballarat Project in terms of its prospectivity. No inferred resources are measured and indicated yet. It's too early, but that's why the stock's only 30 cents and not $1.60 like Kamenak. If you are so inclined to speculations of this nature, why wouldn't you take a shot on something like this? And we're going to end this interview on that point. Why wouldn't you consider taking a shot at something like this as a potential investor? Michael Ballinger, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Appreciate your participation. You're welcome, Ellison. It was very kind of you to have me on your program. I've been speaking with Michael Ballinger, chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as SRC.B and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mines, Giannis Sitos. Gold Source trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.B. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company about to produce gold in English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean in South America. I recently attended the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada in Toronto, the largest mining conference of its kind in the world. I had an opportunity to sit down once again in person with Giannis. Giannis, welcome back to the program. Els, thank you very much for the invitation to talk again. Now, you have an update as far as what's going on in Guyana. Is it true that you're pouring gold? And if so, why didn't you bring me any? <laughs> Thanks for the question. We concluded construction of the mine at the end of January. And we announced that we have now entered into the phase of commissioning in February. And about 48 hours ago, we did the first coal pour. So, obviously, we haven't reached commercial production yet. We expect this to be reached in the second quarter of this year year, but everything's looking good. We are pouring more gold this week. There are no major upsets on any part of the engineering circuit, so full force is working. The full shift there is about 10 hours shift a day, 
and uh, we're looking good. How much gold do you expect to pour this year? I mean, it's difficult to do the estimation yet because we have to do all the mass balances and so on in the coming couple of months, completing the, the commissioning. But I would say something between five and 10,000 ounces. And this happened very, very quickly, did it not? Absolutely. And the biggest thing that I would like to mention here, Alice, is that we deliver this construction of the mine at about 18% savings to what we put up front it will cost us. So this is a very rare case in the mining world that the company commits some capital expenditure and delivers the project at 18% under budget to the market. So this is incredible. Ultimately, what do you expect the price of gold per ounce to be with regard to gold source? The cost, yeah, yeah. Because as I said, the only thing I don't control is the price of gold. All the other parameters are under my control. So therefore, the operating costs are very good. We already experiencing that through because we have the full force working there. We still believe we will deliver cash cost Guyana under $500 and uh, all-in sustaining capital with Canadian overheads and everything between $600 and $700. Perhaps. Is that priced out during the next couple of years? Do you see production costs coming up at all, even as the price of gold increases? No, the opposite, actually. The more ounces you keep, as you ramp up the project, and, uh, you know, if you remember, this is a stage development approach. So we start with small production, but we will, every kind of year, we will almost go uh, 68%. And more. So as you increase your denominator of the amount of ounces, your capital expenditure at this day is the same. Maybe we bring a little bit of more mining equipment, but it will all be great. And the average cost of per ounce will drop as we go. So, Any idea of the potential mine life? And what are you doing to expand the resource? It's all about expansion and free cash flow. This is a story that uh, you want to create this profit margin on per ounce basis to redeploy it in order to do expansions, both in the capacity side in other words, put more throughput from 1,000 tons a day to 4,000 tons a day and also improve recoveries from a pure gravity plant to introduction of a Leeds reactor and therefore 60% recoveries to 90s, a kind of 92% recovery. Now, this is a nice marriage, this company, between you and the board of directors who are also involved with your sister company, Silvercrest Metals. You have the property. They have the management team. Give us a little bit of backstory. If you try to do M&A, a successful M&A is one plus one makes better than the sum of the two, okay? So the Silvercrest Mines team is an exceptional team, but most importantly, Ellis, they have been used to develop projects through this approach. Eric Fear is the number one name out there. They are our chief operating officer and the president of Silvercrest Metals now. So in what we call phase development approach for a project. So therefore, it was not only about the management, it was also about the plan to move Eagle Mountain from an exploration project into a fully blown mine producing operation. Okay, so that's the big thing. So it took a lot of pain over the last two and a half years for lots of people. But in our case, the marriage worked very well and we complemented one team and the other team. And now we are up and running and I want to give a lot of credits not only to the management because the most important people are really the operating people on the ground and we do carry an incredible team in Guyana. I'm talking now about the people, the simple workers, the fabricators, the excavator operators, the people who work day to day. I'm spending significant time of my time as a president in Guyana almost every month I'm there and I see what I'm saying here. It's not uh, a praise. So I want to congratulate all of these people and without the dedication of this team and also the support from the government of Guyana and a lot of other people on the local stakeholding environment, the local communities and so on, we wouldn't be in this position. Yana Sitos, thank you so much for the update. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk again. 
I've been speaking with Giannis Setos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. I'm Ellis Martin. Almost four years ago, and then again about two years ago, I made and repeated a rare prediction. I stated that gold had no business being priced as high as it was, and that it should fall to about $900 an ounce to keep things just fair. Keep in mind that at one point, it had risen to nearly $1,800 an ounce, if not higher, and the pundits Those with actual so-called backgrounds in economics and commodities and other metals rock stars were pointing gold and silver much, much higher than that. They were all wrong. And I sensed it. And I knew it. And I told you about it. And I was mocked for doing so. And I didn't much care, really. I'm a journalist with an opinion, after all, covering the sector, walking about and hanging my hat in it for the past almost 20 years. Well, perhaps those folks, many of them friends, were not necessarily wrong. Their timing was just off. We never hit $900 gold, but we came darn, darn close. It's not that I wanted to be right. I just felt that the suppression of gold and silver had to follow the parabolic rise that we had been experiencing, that the rise to unseen heights was unrealistic, and the price had no business being where it was, overly inflated. All right. So what else is new? The mining industry, i.e. public companies in the sector, those good and bad, were practically beat down to nothing, with share prices dropping in some cases to valuations that just never made sense. Pennies on the dollar, while the price of gold and silver settled to prices that were near what we saw in, let's say, 2010. At that time, metal stocks were in most cases never as low as they have been a few months ago. Not even close. I'm referring to many of the juniors. A lot of them are gone now. The gap between the price of gold and silver and their relative share prices in companies, good or bad, was never as wide as it was in the late summer of 2015, not too long ago. Even now, the gap is substantial after a few weeks of excitement in the market. Gold and silver stocks are cheap. In mid-June of 2015, David Morgan and I did a segment on this program where we discussed a European bank run, again revolving around Greece to begin with, and fanning out from there, fueling a run on gold. This particular segment was widely received, a huge amount of listeners, unprecedented in years, not since my weekly chats with Jim Sinclair, who in 2011 was predicting astronomical gold prices that never materialized that year, as well as five major banks shutting down. Well, that never happened. While talk of a bank run quieted down for the time being, the gold run, or rush, did in fact begin shortly after summer vacation was over. Well, all right, maybe mid to late fall 2015, so I'm exaggerating just a bit. New lows were recorded for the metals. There was still blood in the streets. But those pocketing or stacking silver and gold did not relent. They've been accumulating the metal for a very long time. Banks and nation states as well. Individuals. Savvy gold and silver bugs. We should have all been accumulating cheap stocks from good junior, mid-tier, and major mining companies. We should have been. That's what folks such as Dudley Baker and David Morgan and others were saying and doing. That's what many of you were doing, but not most folks. A rise in stock prices is closing the gap now between metal prices as they also rise. But it's still a very wide gap, and these are very early days because talk of wealth and accumulating junior mining companies is not talk on the streets or in the media yet. It's not talk. 
only among us that follow the sector. We feel something big, though. Are there legitimate market trend reasons for this new run? Yes and no. It's my belief that the gold runs, more specifically the mini parabolic runs of the 21st century, were created by a variety of power players merely for profit. These were entities that positioned themselves in the market with ETFs, bonds, metals, and stocks, took positions when prices were very low, and let's face it, gold was as low as $349 an ounce in 2001. Very cheap. Not too long ago. These were very intelligent and intuitive players that jumped in and then fomented the hype that brought everyone else in, yet only a small part of the overall investment community comparatively, getting us all very excited, building a parabolic run, and then, and then and then cashing out. And this hype was built in large part on a collapsing Greek economy and or exit from the euro that had successfully come to rise at the turn of the century. Little Greece, a country with just 11 million people needing a bailout, was the cause of the spark of the gold run back then. Blame it on paradise. And everyone ran with it. And I never bought in it as a real reason for the collapse of the world financial system. And then that happened more or less in late 2007, early 2008, after a period of inflated abundance. The financial system collapsed, but the price of gold really didn't at that time. There were scores of companies that did not survive. Resource stocks fell, but not to the lows they were at last summer. There was blood in the streets and death in the sector, but the world did not end. And the parabolic rise picked up again in 2010. It continued and continued. We were all very happy about this. But what were the reasons? An imminent collapse of the dollar? Well, that wasn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. And still there was talk of a failing, fading Europe and the collapse of the EU. These are good reasons, right? In my opinion, and I live in the greater Hollywood area, it's a sequel to a movie. It's a sequel to a movie that was a huge success. A Batman sequel, a Star Wars, Star Trek, Indiana Jones, The Hangover Part 2, Part 3, Part 4, Ad Infinitum. If it works once, try it again and again. A well-planned sequel is being orchestrated by many of the same players and, <clears throat> well, um, so-called natural market forces, all at bargain basement prices. The opportunities that arose after a market collapse, the kind that we saw in metal commodities, were incredulous, cheap, and deals were done. Positioning took place, and these same players will fuel the hype, push the market, charm institutions, fund managers, and retail investors like it's never been done before, without any talk of a collapsing dollar, which, again, in my opinion, just isn't going to happen. We're not Venezuela or Argentina or Russia or China. It will come down to this simple phrase, buy gold or buy silver. It will be the new biggest not-so-secret secret and pathway to wealth, parabolically. Perhaps as I've discussed with guests on this program before, the biggest run we've ever seen in modern history. Is this the last run? Will it be a bubble? These are questions that we've pondered. Again, Throughout the last 15 years, same questions, different year, different cycle, same movie theme, same plot line, newer, more high-tech spin, better computer graphics, more entertainment, more Hollywood, and don't think Hollywood won't get behind this. I'm seeing more fund managers and brokers get excited about gold again right here in Los Angeles. They are making money for themselves and their clients just in the last few months, and this is just the beginning of the latest sequel. 
What else have we got to do with ourselves? Where else can you put money and hope for a parabolic return? People by nature are greedy and impatient. We want massive returns now, and we don't want to wait. We're risk takers, and if we can afford to take the risk, we do it. Now that is the American way, and it's how fortunes are made. Yes, there are opportunities in real estate around the world. Here in California, the Chinese are jumping in as they did in places like Vancouver, buying up the jewels around here. The investment properties, as all of that money exits China for safety. American real estate is a safe investment. But this leaves many of us out of the picture in that arena. It leaves traditional mom and pop investors out of the real estate market as prices are just too high. Again, look at Vancouver. Look at what is happening in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco. Gold and silver are in vogue and these are early days in this round, this cycle, this sequel, or this series finale. What if it is the last big one, the last episode of the biggest TV show in history, the Breaking Bad of Gold Cycle? We're all paying attention and right up until the end, we're going to get gold and silver silver-plated accoutrements, knickknacks, gold-threaded shoelaces, or simply stacking grams, ounces, bars. You better jump in right now when stock prices of gold and silver companies are incredibly cheap, and I'm not kidding. Now, I'm not allowed to recommend that you buy any particular stock. I can't tell you to buy any specific item. I can't. I won't. I often showcase suggestions, but that's all I do. I showcase suggestions. What I will say to you is this. It might be a very good idea to risk or buy whatever you can safely afford to lose and jump into as many mining stocks as you dare to. Build yourself a basket of them because everyone else is going to do it eventually in some capacity. I'm liberal with the use of the word everyone, but you catch my proverbial drift. Everyone will pile in and then at some point, those that set this sequel into play will sell off and the bubble will pop. And before that bubble popped, you can sense it and ease yourself out. How long will this run last? I don't know. I have no idea at all. But it's here and it's coming hard. And then it'll be over and I don't know what that over will look like and I don't want to speculate. Will there be a nice afterglow or will there be a world of regret? I suspect a little bit of both. Yes, buy the mining sector and buy it smart. It will be a trader's market and a market for the long term. And I'm calling a long term really no longer than two to three years. You'll be able to profit as a trader and as a long-term player, depending on the stocks, of course. It would be wiser for you to invest in companies with solid management teams, folks that have done it before, have brought companies to success, companies with money in the bank and great assets, even better if they are near production or are currently producing. That's what we've been saying, and those are the companies that are doing well now. But cash is going to pile into companies that are nothing but smoke and mirrors, just like it's always been when a sector is hyped up. Can money be made with these charlatans? Probably in the short term in an inflated market. Is it right? Well, it's not safe, I tell you that. First money in is usually first money out, and it can happen very fast. Eventually, any company with a good-looking website or a brochure will be a target for investment for those that aren't really doing their homework. But play it safe. Look for the good fundamentals and get in. This round, this sequel, this Batman versus Superman event will make us forget the past failings of the sectors, the past losses, and gain. This will be what we all talk about after it's over. During the last cycle, or peak of 2011-2012, less than one half of 1% of investors were involved in resource stocks. What happens if that jumps to 1%, 5%, or 10%, and the physical supply for the metals will never keep up with the demand? It never really has, no matter what the prices have been. What will happen then? If you're not in, think about getting in. 
If you've been waiting, now's probably the time. Get smart. Get smarter. Get educated. Read. Listen. And as I've said many times, do your own homework. Build a knowledge of the sector. Build your fundamental knowledge. Build your intuition. Trust your learned instincts and gut. Invest only what you can afford to lose. But let's face it. Look at all the other junk we buy. Junk that we have to replace over and over again. Buy smart. Buy as safe as you can, but buy gold and silver, not just the metals, but good companies. I cannot be any more specific than that. This segment is non-company specific. It's unsponsored and merely a recommendation from me, a journalist with an opinion, someone who's been involved in this sector in one form or another for almost 20 years. Doesn't mean I'm an expert necessarily. It just means that I have a certain feel for things like you do for whatever you've been pondering or involving yourself with for the last 20 years. How did we wind up here? We just did. It's as simple as that. Perhaps instead of or in addition to upgrading your phone, laptop, TV, or or living room furniture, toss a few bucks in the gold and silver stock. I'm Ellis Martin. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental. Trading on the OTC is BCCEF, and on the CSE, the Canadian Stock Exchange, as BAC. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized a proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas resulting from abandoned mining operations. Backtech's core technology called bioleaching employs naturally occurring bacteria harmless to both humans and the environment to oxidize the sulfide materials left behind after years of mining. I should note that I've joined the company as a consultant and I'm a shareholder of Backtech Environmental. Ross, you and I just visited in Toronto not too long ago at the Prospector and Developers Association of Canada. There were some new developments that relate specifically to Backtech. Why don't you tell us all about it? Correct. As your listeners might remember, we're following the trail of mercury in predominantly Ecuador, Colombia, Peru and the use of mercury as a, an amalgamator in the gold processing industry for artisanal miners. We were fortunate to sit down with Dr. Marcelo Vega, whom I understand you'll be interviewing at some time in the future, to raise the profile of this problem in South America and in developing countries in general. It exists also in Africa and other places. So he's agreed to come on board as an advisor to us and help us identify locations in Ecuador where he's had a hand in building flotation plants for processing this difficult arsenopyrite type of ore that we like for bioleaching. Now, to be clear, Dr. Vega is a esteemed professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and he is turning out people year after year who are uh, becoming involved in the sector. True? Correct. His whole mandate, or mantra, for lack of a better word, is to convince these artisanal miners that the best way to get gold out of difficult rock is not by using mercury to amalgamate it, but to actually use what they call flotation, where you literally float the sulfides away from the rock. The sulfides have all the value. They also have all the arsenic. What's happened, of course, is that you've now created a very high-grade gold content, but also a very, very high arsenic content. And that product becomes tricky to sell is the best way to put it without paying a lot of penalties from the buyer so what he has done is convinced the artisanal miners that the use of flotation or separating the sulfide ores away from the host rock now that's a great idea the problem is of course that you have very high gold levels but you also have very high arsenic levels and this makes the product very very difficult to sell on to a smelter or refiner 
because of the penalty elements that are involved. So none of this has stopped when we're talking about mercury poisoning and arsenic poisoning and bad mining practices. They're going on. They've never stopped, and it's at an artisanal level. These are small folks just making a living. How are you going to change their way of thinking? By paying them more. Right now, they're getting as little as 10 cents on the dollar for concentrates that have values of over $6,000 a ton. And it's predominantly the Chinese who buy this material and take it to China for processing over there, where maybe they don't pay as much attention to the world rules on the amount of arsenic that can be burned in a smelter. So you, as in Bactech, is going to be paying them more for what they're delivering out of the ground, and you're also going to make sure that the poisoning stops. Yeah, as I've said many times in the past, one of the main benefits of bioleaching is the ability to produce a ferric arsenic, which is a U.S. EPA-approved material for landfill. Again, I always say not that we would do that. But historically, of all the 20-odd plants of bioleach plants that have been built in the world, arsenopyrite is the one common element that they process. What's going on in Bolivia and Ecuador specifically that Bactech is considering taking on? Well, the long story in Bolivia hopefully is coming to a close. We've been trying to sign a contract for well over a year and a half now with Comibol, who's the state mining company, and it's been frustrating to say the least. We did have the opportunity to spend an hour with the minister of mines, who would be, I guess, the superior to the Comibol at PDAC. It was arranged by the Canadian government, and we sat down for an hour and very forcefully made our opinions known as to our dissatisfaction with the fact that this contract has not been signed. It's funny, I'm actually expecting a call today from the minister to tell me what day we will go down to sign. So we'll see if that happens. Does he know we're talking about this on the radio? I doubt it. Why is it such a challenge to bring industry-wide awareness to this problem? You were at PDAP. You saw the responses of people with whom I spoke regarding our plans for Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, etc. Everybody says, wow, what a great idea. And I say, so I can sign you up? And they say, oh, no, no, I don't have any money, or it's not the right market, or or come back to me after you've built the first one. And it's always the same. The first one's the most difficult one. Even though we've built three plants elsewhere in the world, they were for mining operations. Now we're looking at basically tailings in Bolivia and, of course, this anti-mercury crusade in the gold industry in Ecuador and Peru. I wish I had the answer, Ellis. It's been extremely difficult to raise the day-to-day money, but the project money falls out of the trees. It's like fast-in, fast-out money. They'll lend you the money for the plant, but they want it back within two years. And they want a high interest rate, and they want an NSR, and they want warrants, et cetera, et cetera. So you've had those opportunities. You just have elected to keep them out of your company for obvious reasons. Well, you have to walk before you run. And there's no sense me talking to anybody about debt financing a plant when I have to raise the capital first to do all the necessary test work that has to be done to determine whether or not it is, in fact, a bioleach candidate or not. We mentioned Peru in a previous broadcast. Don't you have a joint venture there with a company called Duran Resources in northern Peru? I have a memorandum of understanding with Duran Ventures, who are in the process of building a 100-ton-a-day sulfide plant near Trujillo. I actually think that it'll start to begin the commercialization process, which is sort of working out the kinks as early as two weeks from now, maybe mid-April. Once they are up and running, the goal, of course, is then to expand that 100-ton-a-day plant to 350 tons a day, with the extra capacity being used to produce our arsenopyrite concentrates. We will build a bioleach plant at the site of Duran. What is the benefit to Bactech for all this effort on your part? A, mercury reduction, again, because they do it in Peru as well as in in Ecuador, and B, making more money for ourselves. How are you making more money for yourselves? Basically, we're making money because we're going to be buying, again, under the same process, 
as we use in Ecuador, paying the miners more money to deliver their product to us for processing. Doesn't that make you, in a sense, more or less a gold producer? Yeah, it does, actually. I mean, we'll be able to identify, I would say, in Ecuador with a 40 ton a day plant, probably close to 40,000 ounces a year of production. And I would think that's probably going to be a little bit larger in Peru. So to reiterate, technically, you will be in many aspects a gold producer and, and perhaps not too far away from this point. It's all speculation. We don't have that locked in gold yet. You do have a memorandum of understanding, but it hasn't taken place yet, but it's likely to. I would hope so. I mean, or else I'm wasting my time coming to work every day. The reality is we're sort of de-risking mining. We don't have to run around and drill holes in the ground. Somebody else is going to be bringing it to our front door where we will then assay and pay them on the spot and then take... I guess the only risk that we take on is we control that gold in our hands for, say, 30 days, and we would be subject to the fluctuations in the price of gold. But it would have to take a miraculous collapse to hurt us. I mean, we make money at $500 gold based on our models. So your production costs, essentially, for an ounce of gold will be probably $500 an ounce. Well, I would say that if you break it down to the actual different components, so our costs are broken down into components of $50 a ton for flotation, $200 for bioleaching, so $250, and then another $50 for plus or minus, and so $300 a ton is our operating cost. Could that happen this year or next year? It really is a function of being able to raise the capital to identify the opportunities and deal with the test work side of it. We've identified through Dr. Vega, an engineer in southern Ecuador, northern Peru, who has a long history in the area. He is going to be approaching the flotation plants that Marcelo Vega is responsible for building over the last 10 years and identify how much arsenopyrite actually is produced on a daily basis from those plants. And then we would negotiate to deal with them on a one-to-one basis. Our goal is to get to 40 tons a day of concentrate under contract. It just makes financing the plant that much easier if you have a contractual engagement. So in that essence, your share price right now and your share structure could be very conducive for those that may want to consider getting involved in your company right now. I use an example with some of my closer friends that I talk to. In our stocks, two to three cents Canadian, something like that. I said, if you can buy 100,000 shares at two cents to three cents, you're gambling two to $3,000 because in a year's time, it'll either be worth nothing or it'll be worth $100,000 based on production or lack thereof. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. You recently brought on Dr. Vega and myself as consultants to Backtech. Let's explain to our audience why that decision was made, at least on your part. First of all, the public knowledge of this problem, of this mercury-related problem in South America especially, is not well known. So one of the things that we all discussed when we met at PDAC was how do we raise the knowledge level for the average guy in the street to understand this is a big problem. I believe that there are two major rivers that come out of Ecuador that go into Peru that are dead. There's no fish. Keeping in mind that the people down in Peru are using this water for their fields and it's got arsenic in it and it's got mercury in it. It's atrocious. So from my point of view, because I like to use you as a partner going forward to spread the word about what you're doing, I'm hoping that you'll be interviewing Dr. Vega at some point in time as well to at least educate your readers or listeners to the problem. Well, we certainly want to shine a light on this problem and end it if possible, or at least put a major dent in it, potentially save lives because it goes into the food chain and the miners and their children and their families, the villages, everybody's affected by it. And as you said, these rivers are dead. So it'd be good to involve ourselves in that and turn it around. Ross, I'll be speaking 
speaking with Dr. Vega very, very soon on this program, and we will hear his take and his passion on why he's involved, and of course, the opportunities available for everyone. Excellent. Spread the word. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program, Ross. My pleasure, Ellis. I've been speaking today with Ross Orr, the president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange with a CSE as BAC. That symbol again is BAC. And on the OTC as BCCEF. Find Backtech's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and click through to their website. You can download the Ellis Smart Report in its entirety on iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with renowned Canadian Yukon gold prospector Sean Ryan. Sean is on the advisory committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SRC.B and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Stakeholder Gold is conducting exploration on its 100% owned Ballarat Gold property, located 120 kilometers southeast of Dawson City in the White Gold District of the Yukon. Sean's mushroom farmer to wildly successful and unique gold prospector story has been featured on CBS News' 60 Minutes as well as ABC News and several other news forums. Let's focus in on a successful story such as Kamenek and how the stakeholder Ballarat project more specifically might be something close to it. We ended up finding the white gold saddle deposit. In 2006, we ended up picking up the coffee claims, which was about 15 miles away from the white gold, the gold deposit. In between Bella is the stakeholder Ballarat project. So they're right in that same neck of the wood. 2008, they drilled the discovery hole into the white deposit. 2009, I actually optioned the coffee project to the Kamenak guys. And then we did the work on it in 2009, and then they drilled the discovery hole, the first hole in 2010. So that's what kind of lit the whole place on fire. And so pretty well all the claims got picked up. And so a little bit of the history to the stakeholders, Bellarat, I own 50% of that whole district. It was 50,000 claim state, and I own 25,000. So I said, like, go big or go home. So we basically tagged onto a pile of claims, option a bunch. But I was always trying to, to get the Bellarat project because I actually had the first, first discovery when the light bulb went on was on the border of the Bellarat project. There was a, a young geologist prospector that his family had mined Placer Gold in the 80s and 90s on the Bellarat Creek. So I was right on top of the mountain above Bellarat. There was a five Placer Creeks. There was Thistle and there was Barker and there's Kirkman. So it was kind of the apex right on top of the mountain, five Placer Creeks in the middle of nowhere. Like this is south of the Klondike Goldfields. And I'm walking on the road in between the two Placer Creeks. Lo and behold, there was a quartz vein sitting there that the cat had pushed over going in between both creeks. You bang on a million rocks in your lifetime and you only see visible gold every once in a while. If you see visible gold, it's called a hole in one. There I found walking in between those two creeks, there's visible gold. So that's the stakeholder claim block, the Bellarat. But there was nobody there in the whole country. The Bellarat project was sitting there. They optioned to another company and they did some work, but we never actually worked the property. You know, everybody walked away. Stakeholder got their hands on that project. I look at this and then when I played with the data, I could actually see some high probability there's something really going on and what happened was the placer guy uh, the prospector geo that he was working with his family or his parents mining the creek they actually got an unusual population a bunch of chunky nuggets in one area of the creek the creek is consistently producing plaster so okay that's a good story it's coming from somewhere when they were mining up the creek they came across an area that produced some nice chunky plaster gold right there on the side of it he started banging around and they found rocks that were running up to 0.9 ounces per ton gold in quartz veins they poked the 
couple of holes, they could have been parallel in the mineralization. So I think now with our new technique, we'll be able to walk in, map that system out, basically do our magic and send in the hammer drill in there, zap it, pin it down to the plus or minus 5 meters to 10 meters zone, and then bring in the rab and basically kiss it really good. And it's like bang, bang, bang. Statistically, there's something there. We know we should be able to kiss that target and hit that target. What was your motivation to join Stakeholders Advisory Board? To get the market cranked again. When the market was crashing, we had the white gold deposit discovery. We had the coffee discovery. And then Attack had their discovery in the eastern Yukon. You needed three of them. Bang, bang, bang. One gets people's heads turned. Two, they start to stand up and take notice. Three, they're going, crap, what the hell's going on up there? Let's start moving. So with Bellarat, because I don't own the ground, like I'm not even, it's not even my ground. And historically, I wouldn't even look at it because it wasn't my ground. What I realized is, okay, I need one of these hits. So I said, you know what? I see the data. I know what we could do with it. And that represents a hit to me. I think we could go in and kiss that and basically find something. All of a sudden, that'll get the market going. We got to help each other now in the whole district in the market because that's what ramped up the last big play. There's probably a couple million dollars into that ground and for 250, 300,000 bucks, I'm going to go and actually solve the mystery, at least get a good idea. So that's kind of the cool part about this 100-year-old mystery of the Klondike Goldfields and the placer being produced in the Yukon. There's deposits sitting above on the, in the headwaters. I've been chatting with renowned Yukon Gold prospector Sean Ryan on behalf of our sponsor, Stakeholder Gold, trading on the TSX Venture as SRC and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.